Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. I was going to talk about... uh, a number of things that I've been dealing with uh, in the last week. I went and was looking at uh, the Francis Chan website and uh, and how they approach the idea of church. And he's been going through a lot, seeing that there needs to be this kind of home church movement. And, uh, you know, he had, he had developed a ministry to begin with that was somewhat like regular churches today. You know, I mean, they're all a little bit different, but there actually is a formula that you kind of see when you lay them over top each other. You know, you got all these pews and people sitting in the pews, and then you have a pulpit, and then you have, uh, you know, uh, music and, and preaching. And so... That's a formula that really didn't exist when Jesus was walking around with his apostles. Such things did exist to some degree in the Hellenized Jewish synagogues. uh, But that was a Greek creation rather than what was counted as worship in the church in the wilderness. The Church in the Wilderness was a very practical church. It was uh, a necessary organization that was called out by Moses, and it was we called them the Levites, and they, that was because most of the guys who actually came out when Moses called people out of the Walden camp of the Golden Calf, the Levites were the ones who came out more than anybody else. So they became this... This uh, church in the wilderness, the called out in the wilderness, that's where the word church comes, or we translate it from the uh, the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out. And Moses called out people out of the camp, and Jesus called out men out of the world, and the word world there is constitutional order or system of government. And they were an ecclesia, which is a specific Greek word that doesn't mean gathering. It means called out. And it usually is used when there was a corrupt government, like some sort of government that was causing chaos amongst the people, difficulties amongst the people, uh, corruption in, in the system of their society. And they called out men to challenge that government. Uh, and if enough people came out and followed the men called out, the government would collapse. Because it's kind of like a general strike. And uh, then they would go back into the city and reorganize with a new group because the old group was considered so corrupt. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus says right away in the beginning of his ministry. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I am going to appoint it to another group. Now, who's he taking it away from? Well, the Pharisees were kind of in power at the time. The Sadducees had a certain amount of power. Even some of the Essenes, you know, they had their own gate. Uh, 
in the city uh, going towards the temple. Uh, so they had an influence too, but they were kind of apolitical, and they were there were different kinds of Essenes, but uh, they they operated mostly by charity. Uh, they did not participate in the animal sacrifice that was going on in the temple. They used the Torah, but they interpreted something else going on in the Torah than what the Pharisees saw. Unfortunately, modern Christians mostly see the Old Testament and the Torah through the eyes of Pharisees. They don't see it through the eyes of the Essenes. And when you read about the Essenes, and there's a variety of Essenes, but when you read about them, a great many of their teachings seem to coincide with what Jesus was saying. So there was a similarity there, and some people thought that John the Baptist was an Essene, and that's reasonable. We had a number of discussions in the last week about was Jesus rich? And of course we have a, uh, uh, you know, uh, article on that subject. For some reason or another, and I, I could guess why, the Roman church propagated the idea that Jesus was from a poor, humble family. Probably to make all the poor people that the church was overseeing uh, feel comfortable in their poverty. Because even Jesus was poor. But that actually doesn't seem to be the case at all. Jesus was from a very rich and prominent family. A well-to-do family. Now that just, people just cringe at that thought for some reason or other. I don't know why they think that's so, uh, such a bad thing to even say. Because one reason they think it's so bad is because it's not what they knew before. <laughs> and if you, if you challenge what people, what people think, they go all haywire. Well, no, I, I never heard that. It can't be true. I never heard that. And, uh, that's just not the way it works in in reality. Why do I say he was rich? Well, you can read the article. I mean, his uncle was considered to be one of the richest men in the Roman Empire. It says in the Bible, though he was rich, he made himself poor. Uh, I point out many times before that Jesus was not a Levite, but his cousin was a Levite. Jesus was of the house of David. Uh, Jesus was, uh, uh, we don't know exactly what happened to Joseph. He seemed, uh, Jesus' uh, adoptive father seemed to have gone out of the picture somewhere along the line. Which w- And we know that John the Baptist was the eldest of the family. And we know that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, seemed to be murdered in the temple. In the Holy of Holies, and uh, according to the stories as we as we see them uh, presented in scriptures and, and apocrypha, and if that were the case, he was he was like a high priest, or at least one of the high priests of the temple, and he was assassinated or died some mysterious way. Uh, there's a reference to that, and. John the Baptist ends up out in the desert. Well, if if John the Baptist was from a family of the high priests, he was well-to-do as well. <laughs> Yet he goes out and becomes this person wearing camel skin 
garments and eating um, what was probably a, a diet of uh, kind of a carob bean and uh, and honey and uh, living like an Essene and washing people. That was a big thing with them, baptizing. Of course, all throughout Judaic history, there was baptism. And uh, so anyway, they both came from prominent families. But Jesus goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist and says, this is the one who is to come after me. In other words, this is my successor. This is the guy who's going to do what I'm doing out here in the Jordan River. Well, what was he doing in the Jordan River? He was baptizing people, something normally done before you enter into the temple, a temple where supposedly his father was murdered. And he fled the temple. We know Peter later talks about Jesus not going to Jerusalem in the temple because he feared for the life of Jesus because there had been a huge usurpation, a violent usurpation of the structural authorities within the temple. And uh, they feared that he would be killed as well. But Jesus goes anyhow. And of course he is killed. But then he rises again. So, when you understand the politics of what's going on, and this is is very important so that you can understand the vocabulary of the Bible. Because it all fits. It all comes together and fits. There's all kinds of people out there trying to fit the text of the Bible into what they believe to be true. There is actually something that is true. It's not relative to what you think. It's just the reality of what took place. And so the reality of what took place is that Jesus was uh, uh, baptized and announced to be the successor to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the son of the high priest who was murdered in the temple, desecrating the temple. And therefore, John the Baptist had moved the laver of the temple out to the Jordan River, and he was baptizing people there instead of at the laver at this temple. You have to remember also that God never intended you to build a stone temple. That was something David started to do, but then put off. Then Solomon continued to do, and others, Herod did. But that, and Jesus puts down the idea of the temple, even says that there would not be one stone upon a stone, why does he say that? Because the stones of the altar were not to rule one over the other. They were to fit together without exercising authority, without putting a chisel to them. Once you understand, you know, if you go to our website and you read about altars, altars of clay and stone, start seeing all these metaphors, how they all fit together, what kind of government Jesus was preaching when he said, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It all fits together. And it all is taking us in a particular direction. I see people take these same terms like elder and deacon and bishop. And start convoluting a system of authority. Where you will exercise authority one over the other. And when I went to this uh, Francis Chan's website and he has these lessons and tutorials that you can get. You can only get them 
if you pay twenty-seven dollars, I don't know, twenty-seven ninety-five or something, and that's a real good deal because it used to cost ninety-seven dollars. They cross that out and say now twenty-seven dollars, and you can you can learn about his secret secret plan for the church and how to organize your church. I cannot do that. Everything we have is up there for free. I'm not going to charge you. It's going to cost you enough to hear the truth. It's going to cost you your delusions. I So anyway, we had somebody else who wanted to come on to one of our groups, one of the Google groups, which are our network groups. Those network groups are designed so that you could organize in congregations. If you want to debate the or, or go get into a tutorial type position of learning what we have to offer, you can go over and join the Yahoo groups. We have those available and you can uh, you can ask questions and we will point to the answers. Uh, you can visit with uh, ministers in the, to find out. You cannot use our Google groups to bring in your own personalized doctrine. That's not the, I'm not saying you can't bring in your own personalized doctrine to talk to other people about them, but that's not the purpose of the Google groups. What we call the Google groups is just, uh, we, these, there's a number of people like the Yahoo and, and Google that offer that you can join these groups and they give you a certain amount of anonymity and protection and functionality on the internet. What you really want to do is become a part of the Living Network where you join an actual congregation. You don't really become a member of the church. You just congregate in a free assembly. Then you can call up those people or talk to those people or meet with those people and talk to them direct about what's going on in your life in hopes that with these other people you'll begin to seek the kingdom of God. If you all work together and start putting out the information that we're providing... I, I created a half a dozen pages this morning before the show and uh, linked them in an extensive article, which we'll start looking at, which is an article on elders, which you can find at Preparing You. You can go there and we'll go through that article to some degree and help you see what we're talking about when we're talking about these terms that you see popping up in the Old and New Testament, because there were elders in the Old Testament and there's elders in the New Testament. They had different words for these things, but uh, because they were speaking in Greek and Hebrew, but they mean the same thing. And you'd be surprised at how many words mean exactly what the words that we translate into elder mean. Like sheik, the word sheik in Arabic, that that means elder. <laughs> That's what it means. The, the word senate in Rome. Or, or cynics in Rome. That means elder. That's what it means. Now, when those words were first used, they just meant the elder of a family. But over a period of time, they turned into offices of power. And there are people that are really still doing that. They say they don't want to create offices of power. But they don't understand the basic, fundamental, natural essence of the kingdom of God 
instituted by God, instituted by the God who created the heavens and earth and nature itself. And once you understand that, then things may start putting together. And that's what we're going to try to do in this this uh, podcast today is to help you understand what that relationship of an elder is to the rest of the community seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Anyway, so I'm not going to talk a great deal about uh, and set up a tutorial right now on what an elder does. We're just going to talk about the fundamentals of what an elder is and where the term came from and how it functions in the world today and how it should be functioning in a society or community that is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So how that all fits together is going to be very uh, eye-opening, to say the least. And um, But we're going to go back and take a quick review of the word worship. Again, and there was a debate going on on the network uh, brought up. It really wasn't a debate on the network because it's not a place for debate. But people are out there evangelizing in other groups and Facebook groups and what have you. And they're kind of reporting back to the group some of the things that they're discovering or saying or being said to them. I do the same thing. And it helps people kind of organize their thinking in line with what the biblical text is really telling you. But uh, there's a modern definition of worship, the word worship. And Chan talks about worship services. Everybody talks about this in many of the churches. What is a worship service? It isn't you closing your eyes and mumbling intense prayers as you squinch up your face. It is it is something else, but it's defined as the feeling or expression of reverence or adoration. Well, I squinch up my face. I can go up to the front of the church and wave my hands into the air and and, you know, I mean, there's whole comedy routines about, you know, the way you put your hands up, you just hold them up, you wave them over, you know, they have all these different ways of doing it in different churches. But these are just external acts of expression. It, the real expression of reverence and adoration of Christ and God the Father is to do the will of the Father. To do what Christ said to do. Christ is very uh, specific and explicit about this. But everybody has this, oh no, no, you don't do it by works. It's not by works. It's by faith alone. The fact that I mention what you do, I'm not altering faith or salvation by works in any way, shape, or form. I'm not changing that uh, you are still saved by grace. But if you don't have the works, if you're not doing what Christ said to do, if you're not doing the will of the Father, that's evidence that your faith is dead. It's not real faith. It's fake faith, just like fake news. And it's not, it, that's bad news for you. It's not good news for you. Because you're not saved. What you do is evidence of your salvation. If 
if you're not doing what Christ said, that's evidence you aren't really saved. But you think you're saved. You imagine that you believe in Jesus. And Jesus warns that many will think they believe in me. And that they're doing all these great things in my name. But he says, he didn't say a few, he said many. Get ye from me, I know you not. So if you're going to get serious about salvation, serious about Jesus, you have to believe in the real Jesus, not the emotional, eye-squinching, emotional Jesus that we often see referenced in modern churches. That's just not the real Jesus. And so you're going to have to look at things quite a bit different than what people have been and how people have been looking at things. Jesus said, I appoint unto you a kingdom in Luke twenty two twenty nine. He did this after explaining in Luke twenty two twenty five through twenty six, you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles, the princes, the kings of the Gentiles who exercise the lordship. He's appointing a kingdom to his little flock. He said he was going to do this. said he was going to take it from these other guys and appoint it to these, these new guys. These new guys are going to be the clergy. And we're going to get into explaining what that means. But just mentioning the word clergy to some people seems to get their dander up. Oh, there is no clergy. There is no separation of laity and clergy. There absolutely is. And there's a reason for it. Now, when I say clergy, you think the clergy you usually see out there in the world. When I say elder, you you think certain things of what you think an elder is. When I say laity, which just means people, you think, oh, well, he's separating church and laity and he's developing a hierarchy. And No, hear me out. Find out what these words actually meant at the time of Jesus Christ. What was he doing? He clearly called out a group, trained them up as his students, his disciples. That's what disciples means. He put certain requirements on them, saying specifically to them, these requirements are going to be, you can't be one of my student ministers, one of my disciples, unless you do this, this, and this. You have to take these particular positions on. And then it will be my good pleasure to appoint unto you a kingdom. And then he does it. But he says you're not to be like the kingdoms of the other nations. And the kings of the other nations. And the princes. And the men who call themselves benefactors. You're not to be like them. You're not to exercise authority one over the other. That is no different than what Moses said. When Moses said that the stones of the altar were not to be chiseled. Not to be, you can't take a chisel to them. You cannot regulate them. You cannot exercise authority over them. They were to fit together naturally to form a living altar. This is always what it was. We'll be right back. So, Looking back at this word worship, which if you go to our website, preparingyou.com, I mean, that, that site has article after article on all these topics, search engines on every page. 
when you go to a page such as the page on worship or religious worship or worship service, there are live links all down the page. So if you come to Words Like Eucharist, you can click on it and go to an article that explains what Eucharist actually means, which is Eucharist is just the Greek word for a little piece of bread. No, that's not true. I just made that up. It doesn't mean a little piece of bread. The Eucharist is not a little piece of bread. The Eucharist is the Greek word for thanksgiving. Putting a little piece of bread on your tongue, what does that have to do with thankful for the opportunity of giving? Because that's what thanksgiving is. It's thankful giving. Happy to give. That's what the Eucharist is. Putting a little wafer on your tongue and imagining that you're receiving the body of Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with thankful giving. It is a ritual, kind of a bizarre ritual, uh, well accepted in many, many churches, and I'm not picking on them, but it's designed as a ritual and ceremony to re- produce a chemical reaction in your brain that you mistaken for the Holy Spirit. A feeling of devoutness, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of ex- acceptance, a feeling of reference and reverence to something. It is a form of idolatry. <laughs> now, now, that's a lot for people to accept. So, what is the Eucharist? Thankful for the opportunity of giving. Giving to do what? To feed my sheep. To love one another. The word love and charity, same word in the Greek. So, Eucharist, the Eucharist of Christ is gathering together in the name of Christ for the purposes of Christ. That's what name means. It has to do with the identity of Christ. You're not coming in the identity of Christ if you're not coming for the purpose of Christ. What was the purpose of Christ? Out of his own mouth, we know he is one that comes to serve. When you go to church to get a wafer of bread on your tongue, Or to hear a preacher preach from a pulpit while you sit in a pew. You're not coming in the name of Christ. You're coming for a feeling. You're not coming to be a a doer of the word. Yet Christ said you had to be a doer of the word. You have faith in an image of Jesus that is not the true Jesus. And it causes you to do rituals that produce... Chemical reactions in your mind that make you feel good. That's not worship. Worship in the Hebrew is shaka, which means, uh, you know, I'm not very good at the shaka. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just looking at the, you know, the letters. And shem kuf ha hey. It means to bow down. Literally means to bow down. It means to bow to the will of the superior. If you bow down to a superior, somebody will say you are showing him worship. But if you get up and not do the will of that superior, then you haven't really worshipped. You gave the appearance of worship. Jesus has a whole parable about this. Two sons, both given jobs to do. One of them says he'll do it, but doesn't do it. One of them says he won't do it, but then repents and goes and does it. 
Which one is the good son? Which one is worshiping his father, honoring his father? So if you go to church and sing your songs, say your praises, wave your hands, but when you leave church, you don't do the will of the Father. You haven't worshipped. You gave the appearance of worship. If you go and do opposite of the will of the Father, then you're a worker of iniquity. Go to the New Testament. What's the word for worship? Proscunio. It you know has to do with licking the hand, but it actually that's just a a metaphor, an idiom of the Greek language. You know, like your dog comes up and licks your hand because he wants to do what you want him to do. But if he doesn't get around the sheep when they're headed for a cliff, then he's not a good sheep dog. I don't care how much he licks my hand; I really don't like it. <laughs> I want him to get around those sheep if they're headed for trouble. And get them where they need to go. Show them the way. That's that's what they have to do. So if you're going to... Again, the word in the Greek, even though it has to do with lick the hand or kiss the hand, it means to pay homage. You're not paying homage if you're not doing the will of someone with a superior rank. So in the church, we just covered this. Who has superior rank in the church? God. God the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's how you know what the will of the Father is. Now, I could talk to you about what I think the will of the Father is, but I can't tell you what the will of the Father is for you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit because I don't exercise authority over you. That's not... I, I show you the superior rank of God by being of service. That's what Christ says. Because Christ says there is a hierarchy in the church. He who's highest amongst you is the servant to all. So you get higher and higher in rank by being a servant, not a ruler. Very simple concept. Hard to get into the minds of people. To have a minister over a minister who's not ruling over that minister, but providing greater service for that minister. He's not an authority. The authority is Christ. The authority is God the Father. The authority comes to each individual through the Holy Spirit who writes upon your heart and your mind. So anyway, back to, so how does an elder worship? What is his relationship to the kingdom of God and the church? What is an elder? Now people are always trying to create this idea of elder as an office of the church. Because it says he appointed elders. So you think he's appointing... What happened if I said he's appointing old men? He's appointing fathers. Does that mean he's making men father over you? No, because it says called no man on earth father. So they say he's appointing elders. Well, they're actually saying he's appointing presbyters. What does that mean? Old men. Elderly men, men who have had families, uh, raised their children, and have proven themselves to be wise men of the community. He appoints them to positions within the church. What are the positions within the church? Christ commanded that the people sit down in the tens, 
fifties, hundreds, and thousands. It's actually the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They use the word fifty because there were five thousand men there. So fifty groups of one hundred is five thousand. Uh, one hundred groups of ten is five thousand. So that's that's how Christ. So what are the offices in such a group? Do you have a treasurer? Do you have? I mean, do you, do you have presidents and vice presidents? Well, they actually refer in 150 A.D. to the head of the assembly as the president. But that's in the translation. In the original, it's probably a word like principas. And it simply has to do with, you know, the highest servant in that gathering of people. Not a ruler. Not a president who's an executive officer over people. He may be an executive officer over things that the people choose to voluntarily give him. But he's not an executive officer over people. The elders are not executive officers over people of the church. They are executive officers, but what are they an executive officer of? You know, the term elder appears... Uh, hundreds of times in the Old Testament where it also means old man or oldest man in a particular group. It was the Pharisees and the modern church who tried to turn it into an office of the church. It is an office of the family. That is what an elder is. It's the oldest Male, usually male member of a family, would be the elder of that family. He would be the grandfather. And uh, there would be other elders. Elders of your family would be your father. And uh, if you were, you know, if you had grown sons who got married and they had children, they would be elders of their family. But the elders of the whole family, all the sons and unmarried daughters, is the grandfather. And that's that's an office created by God through nature. That And if you honored your father and your grandfather, <laughs> then that would be the elder of your family group. See, a family group is an institution of God. It's a natural institution. You're to call no man father upon the earth. Well, if you go to Preparing You, you can go to our article on elders, uh, which is, you know, under elder. Just look up the word elder in the search engine. It'll take you right to it. And we talk about things like the priest of a family. Who's the priest of a family? Well, when it's a young family starting out, the father is the priest of that family. Of that individual family. If you had no grandfather. And you were a young married man. And you had two small children. You're the priest of the family. Your eldest son. As you grow older. And they grow up. And they get married and start having children. Your eldest son will become the priest. To the whole family. He will receive the bulk of the inheritance. Not for himself. To make himself rich. But to help maintain the whole family. Help take care of the whole family. 
help provide for education, uh, business startups, whatever is necessary. He's the priest who who oversees the welfare of the whole family. That's that's what he does. He's the priest of that family. So you're priests and kings in your own family. And of course, in the individual families, there they have the uh, delegated position as priest in the individual families. Because the families uh, are giving to their father and to the high priest of their family a portion to help take care of everybody else. Now, it doesn't have to be very much unless there's a need. But you all know each other and you know if there's a need. You know, like, you know, Dave ends up in a motorcycle accident and can't work for a, uh, three months. Who's going to take care of his family? The rest of the families in the group. But that family group is still an isolated little group. So now they have to come together in a larger group of families. So how do you do that without infringing upon the rights of the family? And we actually go through and show you all kinds of examples. We show you in ancient Rome how they got together and did this, how the Senate came about, uh, what the the we have links to uh, the seventy chosen by Moses, and then here's Jesus choosing seventy. Well, who are they? Well, the seventy was the Sanhedrin. Well, there was the Sanhedrin around, but Jesus comes along and he picks seventy. Well, what what are they? Well, that's his Sanhedrin. Moses picked him. Jesus picked him. Well, there was another group of of 70 already in existence with the Sanhedrin. And there was actually an upheaval taking place. And we have an article on the Sanhedrin. And talk about the 70 of Moses and the 70 of, of, uh, of other governments. Well, the Romans didn't seem to have 70. I haven't found any evidence that there was a group of 70. But there was a group of 100. And they called that the Senate. And the word Senate, like I said, means old men. And originally, if you go all the way back before the the Republic, before the Tarquinian kings of Rome, which we were back in 700, 800 AD, they would get together and each family, and again, a family, whole family was like a clan. It was a grandfather, all of his married sons and unmarried daughters, and their sons and unmarried daughters, that's one clan. You're a part of that clan. If the married daughter marries somebody in another clan, which would be somebody not her brothers or cousins, <laughs> she becomes a part of that clan. Now, she knows she still has ties, emotional ties and related ties to the first clan, but she's now a part of this other clan and her children are a part of that clan. And that's how the society begins to bind themselves together naturally through marriage, creating the next generation. But how do they operate as a nation? Well, they get together and in these tens, hundreds, and thousands. And the Romans did the same thing. They called their groups hearths, H-E-A-R-T-H. And these groups were groups of elders of these clans. And they would pick somebody who was the noblest amongst them to be their representative. And he would gather together with other men like himself that were picked by other groups of clans. And eventually, those oldest, respected, 
uh, men of these different groups came together and that was the Senate. That was a council of old men. Had no legislative power. Had no legislative power even when they decided to have a king. That's what they, Just like 1 Samuel 8. The Israelites decided they wanted a king. The Romans decided they wanted to have a king. And they picked a Tarquinian uh, king. And about seven kings later, they had had their fill of kings. And they no longer wanted to have a king. And they had a civil war. And they did away with the kings and formed what they called the Republic. But still, the Senate had no legislative power. It had decrees, but they, the decrees were considered advice. They were not law. Over a period of time, that changed as well. What's changing the status of these old men from just old men who kind of represent you and, and help you form a group and share information and ideas talk about well we're having a lot of trouble over here and so they they can ask for aid and send aid over to this other group and that group can send aid to them when they they have things better and they're they're binding each other together those elders are like stones of the altar and the, the they had their priests as well but these these were a little bit different, but they are like the stones of the altar. They are a gathering of men who came together with forgiveness and caring about everybody else, their neighbor, not just the people next door, but the congregation next door to that and the congregation next door to that so that they could form this united group of people through a system of voluntary personal sacrifice. Not men ruling over men but men gathering together. All these senators and all the ones who picked them were elders of their families. They had no power over other families. They could not make laws for other people. They could not exercise authority one over the other. That's not what they were doing. That's not what they could do. They were this group of men who learned to care about one another. The uh, the the Senate, uh, it, it eventually changed. You know, it lasted for a long time. It was always called the Senate uh, or Senatus. And the senators were called Patri. Uh, they were eventually, when they became 300, they were called Conscripti Patri. And the conscripted patri or conscripted fathers uh, were the chief executive power of the Roman government. This is even under the Republic. But they still did not have legislative power. But they could pick councils. First, they could pick kings. And then they did away with the kings. And then they could pick pro-councils. They tried to pick more than one so that they... Trying to create some sort of division of power. Eventually, they be, their numbers were increased to 500 through, you know, over a period. This is over centuries. But they were literally an electoral college to pick someone who was going to be the chief executive officer of Rome. Originally in the Republic, the people were free from things public. The Senate wasn't passing laws. They weren't imposing a lot of taxes on the people. 
they were uh, there was almost no taxes upon the people they were operating still by free will offerings but by 150 AD Polybius talks about what was changing amongst the uh, Romans and that they were beginning to change and alter their uh, relationship with each other, with the Senate, with government, uh, and uh, with the world in general. And how are they changing it? We see the same thing taking place with uh, Israel under Samuel. And Samuel tells you, and you go first Samuel 8 tells you that the idea of picking a ruler, a king, was a rejection that God, they're doing it because they were rejecting that God should not reign over them. How does God reign over them? Like I said, through your hearts and your minds, by writing upon your hearts and your minds through the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't want to do that, that's fine, but you're going to end up under tyranny. And Polybius saw this, and, and he, he, he says, the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and violence. Taxation. Forcing their neighbors to contribute to their welfare, their social security, their free education, the, the police powers of the state. They're, they're taxing their neighbor. They're not coming together in free assemblies. And the only reason that they can do this is because they've taken the power of their father in the family invested it in single men, in senators, and then eventually in emperors. <coughs> when they invest that power that once they had, that right they once had, that right to choose they once had, now in an emperor or president or prime minister or senate or parliament, they get to choose what you're going to give. You don't get to choose what you're going to give anymore. You don't have Thanksgiving in your community. You just have giving. And you have to give because it's imposed upon you. And society is either going one way or the other. The masses are going to continue with an appetite for benefits and the desire of receiving them by force and violence. They are not worshiping the Father. They are worshiping Satan, the adversary of the Father. They are trying to force the contributions of their brother. That is not Christian. Now, you can go to church and get your good feeling. You you can do your praising and your singing and all these things that give you emotion. You can squint your eyes up, you know, and bow your head and and say you love Jesus and this will give you a feeling and everybody does it together and it really helps that feeling come on. But it's not worshiping. Righteously, the Father. So where does that lead? The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others institute the rule of violence to others. Now I'm quoting Polybius, 150 years before Christ, telling you what was going wrong in Rome. How the Republic was soon to become an empire. And the world would change. And Jesus comes along 
and tries to show the people how to change back, how to repent, to think differently. The people have a cultural way of thinking that it is absolutely okay to force my neighbor to provide me with free education for my children. It's absolutely okay to force my neighbor to provide me with health care. It's absolutely okay to force my neighbor to provide me with benefits, gifts, and gratuities. And I institute the rule of force and violence by electing men to make it happen according to my will, not according to the will of the Father. That's what's going on in the world. That's a culture of force and violence. It's not the culture of Christ. If you want to worship God, you have to put on another way of thinking, another culture, a really true Christian following Christ, pure religion culture. We'll show you how to do that when we come back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Now, remember I said that the Senate was like the priests, uh, like the uh, Levites in some senses, except they were an executive branch of government. In Israel, there really was no executive branch of Israel, except you might be able to construe that that role was filled by the Sanhedrin, and we, which was the seventy. And, uh, but originally when Moses appointed the Sanhedrin, the 70, that was not their role. That was not what they were supposed to be doing. They were not an executive branch. They were actually supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit wants each individual person to be blessed by God awakened. I mean, the Holy Spirit was around before Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has been around since Elijah and what have you. And it's a way in which you connect to the realms of heaven so that you receive guidance. And basically, the Holy Spirit is the tree of life. And that's at least through the, it is through the tree of life that you connect with the Holy Spirit. But these are related concepts. So so we have an article on the 70 on the Sanhedrin, which is talks about the 70 of Salome. 70 of Salome did have serious executive power. The 70 of Ptolemy did have serious executive power over what people would uh, see, read, think, etc. Uh, there was a 70 of Jacob. And there's 70 of today and the 70 of Moses and the 70 of Christ. All of those are 70, but they aren't all the same. They're different. One is executing the will of the Holy Spirit, ruling over things, not over men. (laughs) And the other one is ruling over men so that they can have more things. Well, the Senate had certain restrictions. The Senate of Rome had certain restrictions on it. They, they, they couldn't even leave the country without permission. Why? Because they were afraid that they'd be making deals with foreign governments. 
they and, and we have those rules in the United States that they're not supposed to be going out and making deals with foreign governments, accepting bribes from foreign governments, you know, gifts from foreign governments uh, or their ambassadors, and uh, they have to report all that stuff. The Roman senators couldn't even own ships that might be used in commerce because commerce was mostly by ships in those days. That so they because it created a conflict of interest. They could be uh, affecting the economy in a way because they were also in charge of how the money was issued, etc. They had uh, direct connections with the Temple of Mineta, which is the wasn't you know, a bunch of pagan dancing girls. It was people making currency, making money, making coin <laughs> so that uh, they could use it in that, that all these temples were government buildings. So back to elders. Where do elders fit into all this? Elders are the heads of families. And they have a role to play in the government. They are not the conscripted pottery. There is no conscripted pottery in the kingdom of God. Each father in the family must worship God. Now, worshiping again is not that feeling. They have to gather together, sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and share what they choose to share based on the leading of the Holy Spirit in their heart with their minister. Now, what... What's the minister? They have to pick the minister. He doesn't have any power to be appointed from the top down. The original senate was from the bottom up. Once the senate created a king, then the king started appointing the senate from the top down. (laughs) The emperors of Rome were elected by the people. There's only a couple cases where the people did not vote for the emperor of Rome. But he wasn't put into power by the the people. He was put in power by the electoral college of the Senate. Things have not changed. You go read our article on Rome versus us. Just look up the word Rome. Uh, The imperial cult of Rome. Go look that up. Find out what they were actually doing because Christ is coming along saying, call no man on earth father. Everybody in the crowd knew exactly who he was talking about when he said that. When they said, well, how do we get benefits? How, how, how do we get help? How do we get aid? You pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No other name, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom comes when thy will be done. That's a statement. So what's the will of the Father for the elders of the community? I said elders of the community because they're not elders of the church. They're elders of the community. And in one sense, the word church can't, as we use it today, can mean the Christian community. In its most general sense, it's the Christian community. And we give you that specific legal definition of the church that still exists to this day. They're telling you the truth. They have to tell you the truth. But they often tell you in a way where if you don't read carefully, if you don't look carefully, if you don't open up your eyes and your heart carefully, you will miss the truth. They're telling you in the most general sense that the church is a community. It's established by Jesus Christ. 
for his purposes and his uh, the propagation of his doctrines. What is his doctrine? Love thy neighbor as thyself. Don't covet thy neighbor's goods. Don't exercise authority one over the other. But come together in faith, hope, and charity and according to the perfect law of liberty. These are the doctrines of Christ. doesn't say anything about squinching your eyes and pretending that you believe in Jesus. If you Now, you may do that and you're perfectly welcome to do that, but when you open your eyes again, are you doing the will of the Father? Are you taking care of one another? Remember, Paul and David both talked to you about eating at the tables of rulers. Proverbs talks about eating at the table of rulers. Put a knife to your throat. The Bible talks to you about unrighteous wages. Those are unrighteous rewards, unrighteous benefits. Benefits that come by what Polybius calls the rule of force and violence. If you want to be a Christian you in a home church, that home church needs to gather together with the purposes of becoming the social welfare, the daily bread, because that's what you're praying for, your daily bread, your daily provisions in meats and coats and and rent and whatever you need. The church is supposed to be providing that to faith, hope, and charity. But it has to do it in a way that strengthens you. If I just give you, you know, everybody's going to get a guaranteed $2,000 a month. Somebody wants to go out and preach what we teach on a full-time basis is wondering if he there was any way he could do that and receive $2,500 a month. And I've, I've read over his material. Uh, I've, I've got it in my pack where I go out and tend sheep um, to read it over and over again. But I don't receive $2,500 a month in donations. As a matter of fact, all the ministers together do not receive together don't receive $2,500 in donations. None of us are living off of donations from outside, you know, their particular order or or congregation. They're they're not receiving those donations. uh, Everybody's got a job. Everybody's working. (laughs) All the elders work. The way the kingdom works is that people get together and through charity, through the Eucharist, through thanksgiving, we provide the necessary benefits. We have no paid salaries, no paid wages. Now, for me, I was up 3 o'clock this morning, put together half a dozen web pages, trying to explain to you what an elder is. It's the head of a family. Yeah, Paul appointed elders. He appointed heads of families. He didn't make them elders. They were already elders. He simply appointed them to the offices of the church. What are the offices of the church? Deacons. Ministers. Ministers means servants. Deacons. Diaconus. Means really servant of ten. That's what it means. That's the office that there is. Ten elders get together together. They give license to somebody to be the diaconus of their congregation. They agree. You're the diaconus. 
What does that diaconus do? Does he exercise authority one over the other? No. He exercises the character of Christ. He is a servant. What do you guys need? Oh, we need we need a thousand dollars a month per person. Where is he going to get that? It, it doesn't work that way. When you 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 go, he who does not work does not eat. Everybody has to work. No exceptions. Now there are some people who can't work. They may be, you know, paraplegic, quadriplegic. Uh, actually, if you're quadriplegic and you can move a little bit, you can watch sheep. <laughs> I've I've had people watching sheep that look like quadriplegics. They just sit there and watch sheep. <laughs> All you have to do is, you know, click a button with your nose or whatever, and let me know the coyotes are in the field, and then I'll come out and shoot them. <laughs> so, uh, of course, it it is handy to be able to move around too. But the reality, there's something you can do. And that, it, it will make you better. It will keep you from depression if you can, I, I mean, I know a guy who was a quadriplegic. He ran a whole machine shop. Uh, amazing. You know, he invented, I mean, he could move a little bit. Had some rings hanging over his bed and he could get his arms through the rings and kind of prop himself up. But it was the bed was electrically controlled, so he could push these little buttons. And he moved around in the machine shop, and he directed other men what they they were his arms and legs. And uh, he did an amazing job. But uh, so that's a way in which you and if I could help him overcome some of his anger issues, <laughs> uh, he could have done even better. But. Uh, the reality is the minister is supposed to be operating so that you don't have to go to those men who operate by force and violence and fear. That's what, that is seeking the kingdom of God. That is worship when you come together to do that. So the elders come together, pick a minister. That minister gets together with 10 other ministers like himself and they pick a minister. Those are the offices of diaconus. All of them are diaconuses. All of them are ministers to ten. Some of them might be at times called bishops or overseers. Same word, episcopo, translated bishop, also translated overseer. Because they still are diaconuses. They still are ministers of ten. But because they minister to ten ministers, they're overseers. Because they also minister to a hundred. Not directly, but indirectly through the other ten diaconuses, they they minister to a hundred. So that makes them an overseer. They don't have any more authority or exercising authority than anybody else. The authority in your family, this is what Christ was to do, is to return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. The only authority that a minister has is over that which you give him. That becomes a burnt offering, given up entirely. He is one of the altar uh, stones of the altar. If he is not meeting all the qualifications of an ordained minister of Christ, he is part of the clay altars. If he has fulfilled all the requirements of Christ, 
for his disciples, then he is one of the stones of the altars of Christ. That's the church specific. Together they work in harmony, nobody exercising authority one over the other, all of them exercising love, all of them exercising the Eucharist, all of them exercising forgiveness, one for another. If you could gather 144,000 people like that, you would have a miraculous, unbelievable force working in the world today. I went to another group that talks about eldership, according to the book. And uh, I've been exploring that. We'll probably do a program on that if I get enough time to delve into the way they look at things. But I want, according to the book as they interpret it now, the kingdom of God, the, the salvation of Jesus Christ sets you free. It doesn't bind you under some elder office that's going to exercise authority and tell you what to believe. The church is elder-driven, but the elders are elders of families. I can go to the Hebrew word, zian kuf nun. That's, that's the basic Hebrew word for elder. It just means old person, uh, usually the head of a family. And there's, you know, I mean, uh, Zion is the service and valor. That's what that letter stands for. The kuf is omnipresence, the redemption of the fallen spark. As the elder exercises service and valor, actually also that letter means cut and bread. You know, how to divide the bread. You have bread that you've produced in your family. You get to divide off a piece of it and share it. You give it to a minister. You burn it up on the altar. And that minister, knowing the needs of everybody in his congregation, can distribute it. But you can't just love your congregation. This is one of the big problems of the home churches. Oh, they want to love other people like the regular churches love other people from the pew. You can't love from the pew. You have to get up out of the pew and go and do the will of the Father. So the the Zion is this service and valor. The redemption of the fallen spark comes through the kuf and the way in which you provide that service and valor and rightly divide the bread of your house with casting that bread upon the waters, giving it to the stones of the altar in a sacrifice. And the last letter is the nun, which means heir to the throne. It also has to do with the Aramaic word for fish in the mem. Uh, mem has to do with the water. So, together, that service, that Eucharist, that thankful for the opportunity of giving, service and valor, cutting the bread, awakens the divine spark of God in you and makes you head king and priest in your own household. Because you don't just care about your household. See, the reverse of that is to covet your neighbor's goods. 
to stop coveting your neighbor. I don't want any of their benefits. See, people do this all the time. I don't want any of their benefits. I don't covet their neighbor's goods and everything. But they don't get together and rightly divide, cast their bread upon the waters for other families. The reason you go into bondage is because you care about your family more than you care about other families. You're willing to take from other families so that you can provide for your family. Like Polybius was saying. It changes you. Okay, you want to change back? Now you have to sacrifice for the good of other families, not just your family. You have to care about your neighbor's kids as much as you care about yourself. This creates a divine protection, a dome of protection around your family and your society that can actually protect the whole nation. But if you're going to continue, like Polybius says, where the masses continue with this appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of the rule of force and violence. I don't know how you can be more descriptive. The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others with their welfare and their Medicare and their Medicaid and their Social Security and depend for their livelihood on the property of others institute this rule of violence and now uniting their forces massacre banish and plunder until they degenerate again into the downfall uh, degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch you look out in the streets your antifa your your social justice warriors they've become savages they 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 call themselves anarchists and they're going around hitting people on the head with sticks and breaking windows that's not an anarchist that anarchist doesn't believe in force he he believes in voluntarism they've redefined that word just as you've redefined religion religion used to be what you do to provide for your fellow man it, your, the performance religion was defined as the performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. That was the definition of religion for centuries. It's the definition of the word threskia, which we translate into the word religion, the Greek word threskia. The Romans had two words for religion. One was was religiere, which means to bind, uh, or at least includes the word to bind, but it actually comes from res legere, which is to bind things. Because what you did was you took stuff that you had and you gave it up on an altar of sacrifice to somebody you trusted, that you believed was a friend to society. You got to make that choice. And he distributed that to others. To provide for the needs of society. That was religion. And it bound society together. Through honor. Through love. Instead of force and violence. Because it was a free will offering. The other word. That is translated into religion. Is superstitio. That's when you sit in a pew. And you close your eyes. And you bend your head. Or you wave your hands in the air. Thinking. And trying to produce a feeling that you're saved, that you're loved. 
You're not doing the will of the Father. You're just saying, Lord, Lord, enough times that it makes you feel good. And Jesus says, not those who say, Lord, Lord, but he who doeth the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you have to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. If you don't do that, you will become perfect savages, fit for nothing but masters and monarchs. You may call your masters elders, but they are really just masters. So, if you... you you have to take a look at all these things, and that's why we put together all these pages, all these linked articles that show you the meaning of these words. I didn't change the word religion. It was changed before I was born into what you think about God. It isn't what you think about God. It's what you do. That's what religion is. And pure religion is to... Take care of the needy of your society, the widows, the orphans, whoever it is who is in need in your society, unspotted by the world. And the word world there in the text is constitutional order and system of government. That's right out of the concordance. I'm not making that up. It's just different than what a lot of you are used to hearing. But it's no different than uh, it is what it is. Uh you know, Proverbs 23, go read that. It's forbidding this type of government that exercises authority. The bondage in Egypt. Nimrod, mighty provider instead of the Lord. Because how did he provide? He forced the contributions of the people. He had the rule of force and violence. People gave him power and that power corrupted him. Saul gave him power, power corrupted him. Solomon gave him power, power corrupted him. David was corrupted. But David repented. He put off building the stone temple. Because he knew it wasn't what God wanted. He wants a living stone temple. He wants you to come together in real worship. Not fake worship. Real worship. Where you are actually doing the will of the Father. Providing a daily ministration through faith, hope, and charity alone. Where the Eucharist is your desire to give thankfully for the needs of others. You can do this. It requires a certain amount of faith. People say, well, this is impossible. What about faith? Oh, faith is just what I think. No, faith is what you do. Faith is what compels your action. Real faith says in your heart, I have to stop. Looking to force to provide the benefits of society and start looking to charity and love. That's what Christianity was. It's become a, a, a system of feeling and thoughts and doctrines and dogmas, most of which are not preached by Christ. Now, I know a lot of people out there, and you know, I mentioned Francis, Francis Chan, and I, I don't remember the names of some of these other groups that are talking about eldership. And I'm not judging them. I don't know their hearts. I don't need to know their hearts. I need to know the heart of the Father and do what He says. And I'm saying that there are lots and lots of people, there are many out there saying, oh, go here, go there. No, go into your heart and you tell me what you think God wants you to do. You you, you just do it. You don't even have to tell me. <laughs> I don't need to know. But you have to become a doer of the word. 
And if you find it hard to be a doer of the word, you need to question your faith. Paul said to question your faith. James said to question your faith. John said to question your faith. Peter said to question your faith. You start going through the website, reading the articles. You come on benefactors. What are the benefactors? Who exercise authority one over the other? That's your priest today. Whoever is providing you with the benefits of society, you know, uh, you know the the benefits and habits of receiving those benefits. How are you receiving them? It, through faith, hope, and charity, or through force, fear, and violence? Because if you're getting it through force, fear, and violence, those are your priests. Those are your ministers. The, the stuff you do at church, that's just to make you feel good about what you've been doing wrong all week. So anyway, we'll be back in a minute. So welcome back. So again, uh, taking a look at some of the topics that we talked about at the beginning of this, worship is not just a feeling. Worship is actually doing the will of the Father. And you can go through and find uh, all kinds of references to where Jesus is talking about you got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And there's lots of people who think they're hearing uh, the word, they're reading the word, but they're not doing what Christ said. They have no daily ministration. Somebody was trying to introduce, and I've only grazed the surface of some of the material that they wanted to bring to the network, uh, but they had many, many things wrong. And and they may have them wrong to some degree because they have some right perception in their mind. They understand that the church they look out there in the world and they see is not doing something right. And so they try to identify, well, they've got this, you know, they got these priests and they got this clergy and they divide the people. The fact is, Christ divided the people. But he didn't divide it like you see most churches divided today. He, uh, God divided the people. Levites belong to me. They're separate. Uh, the Levites could not own a personal estate. They owned all land in common. Any Levite who sold his land, he could not sell the title to his land. Any other Levite could come and redeem that land back. You could make all kinds of improvements on it. He could come and buy that land back for the original price because they owned all the land in common. So nobody wanted to buy land from a Levite. They might lease it for a while, but they didn't really buy land like we think of buying land all the time anyway. But the point was is that they held it in common. So you kill one Levite and somebody else would take that land. You couldn't get his land by killing him. So they would have land. They would have sheep on that land. All that's held in common. So Because they were, they did not, you know, they weren't a communist government. But they were joint heirs. This is what it means. We have a whole article on joint heirs. So you can see this. There's a reason for that structure. Moses didn't just pull this idea out of a hat. This goes back to ancient times. And it's actually in natural laws. What it is is that some men becomes become servants to society. Because they care about others more than they care about themselves. Even more than they care about their family. Because I have neglected my family many times in order to be of service to others. 
But my family understands that. They, you know, pretty much. Uh, sure, there was some resentment from time to time. <laughs> I guess Dad was away helping other people. What about us? But in the long run, hopefully they will see that this is the life of a minister. But to relieve the burden of that minister, you need to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. He, you cannot be a good minister to a thousand people. You need to break this up. You can be a pretty good minister to ten people. That's a lot of work right there. If you realize that the minister is the entire social welfare and government of the people, for the people, and by the people. If you think it's just the guy who's going to write a sermon that's going to make you feel good on Sunday or Sabbath, well, then he doesn't have much to do. He could he could do that for a hundred people. He could do that for a thousand people. If he gets a good sound system in, he could do it for ten thousand people or twenty. But the reality is that's not the minister of Christ. That's a minister of your feelings. He's just catering to your feelings and your emotion. You're not going to get the Holy Spirit that way. The Holy Spirit lists where it will. I tell you where the Holy Spirit's going to enter into your life is when you give up part of your life for others. When you start really caring about others. But if you're going to pursue the kingdom, you should have a a reasonable perception of what that kingdom looks like that you're pursuing so that you don't stumble on it and get up and dust yourself off and pass it up so that you can actually say, that's it. That's what I've been looking for and grab a hold of that. We've had people come and, and become a part of a congregation in forum congregations, but all of a sudden something interferes. They think it's some doctrinal issue, but it's usually a spiritual issue. There's something that keeps welling up that they have to see about themselves and they don't want to see it. And hanging around people who want to see the truth at all costs is expensive to your vanity. Doesn't that say we don't charge you twenty seven ninety five or ninety seven ninety five or or fifteen hundred? I've seen people charge fifty. They have courses that you can take now online, and all these guys they they want your money first. Well. I'm going to try to put together tutorials and what some of the things that these these guys are talking about biblical eldership. They uh, they talk about tutorials and uh, mentoring plans and elder training programs and, uh, and and these different missions and stuff like that. And then of course they have their bookstore. All our books are free online. Uh, all the ones that uh, that we make available to the general public, the others are free within the network. <laughs> so, uh, but you have to become a part of that network to receive them, and uh, and you don't just receive them because you joined an email group. You have to become a part of the living network, where you actually start doing what Christ said, and then more will come. And so we want to put these things together and make them available to other people, but. Uh, that's going to take some time. I was going to start talking about that, but then I, I woke up, something woke me up and said, go do this other writing for me. <laughs> and so now that's all available. I actually uh, see uh, redundancy on one of the pages. I saw it during the program and I've already 
clip that out and going to put that so that it's, it's not redundant, put it together. But it's all expounded upon uh, the Roman Senate and understanding what was really going on. There's something else that keeps nagging back and God says, because I read it this morning and I, I knew it from before and I have to put it in there. I mentioned it in passing earlier in the, this podcast. But there is just so much information, and the more you get the pieces of the puzzle, for those of you who like big puzzles, you know, there are, you can get these 5,000-piece puzzles. Some people love those 5,000-piece puzzles, and then you start putting them together. When you start putting together certain groups, you know, of certain colors, and then all of a sudden, that fits together with this one, and this fits, and then it really starts coming together, and everybody starts putting the pieces together. We have all the pieces at preparingyou.com. And uh, we're putting it together and more and more. But you have to put it together in your own heart, in your own mind. And then there's the people who like the 10-piece puzzles <laughs> or the 50-piece puzzle. They don't like the 5,000-piece puzzle. They want big chunks already together and then they can fit them together. And that's fine. because But they all are making the same picture which is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you don't need to know all the different... If you're going to be a minister, it's good to know all the different aspects and how all these different quotes in the Bible from one into the other, they keep saying the same thing. But if I go to churches, many of these, some of them, I even many of them, right out of the mouth of Christ, I don't see them preaching that. They, they have this other gospel you know, it, like, you know, oh, it's not by words. She's talking words. It's not by words. No, I'm talking grace. But grace, you know, forgiveness. Did Jesus die so that your sins are forgiven? So are they forgiven? Are they forgiven? Because Jesus said, if you don't forgive, neither will I forgive. Okay, so you say, oh, well, I forgive everybody. Okay, well, you've been paying into Social Security. For some of you for half a century but it's bankrupt it can't provide you with any benefits it doesn't have any money it's not solvent it really hasn't been solvent from the beginning good people talk about oh well they took the funds and they you know they, it was the democrats who made took the funds out of a private trust fund it was never in a private trust fund that's fake news <laughs> that's not true <laughs> I can show you Supreme Court rulings way back in the 60s, way back in the 30s. They said there is no separation of funds. It, it might have been an account over here, but from the government's point of view, there is no separation of funds. And the reason they started Social Security wasn't because FDR loves you like Jesus Christ. It was because they were bankrupt. They'd just gone through a depression. The Federal Reserve was not going to issue as much money because you were out of assets. They only issue money against the collateral that you present. And they, the, the collateral was gone. So they needed more collateral. Social Security. You become collateral for the debt. Have you read the article? I mean, the, the, the articles of Social Security Act? You're collateral for the debt of the United States. You, you're a beneficiary. But a beneficiary is also responsible. You know, I, I knew a guy who inherited a bunch of money. 
and he was the executor of the state. And it was, it was a big, expensive estate and complicated finances in the estate. And so he started working at, you know, had to resolve and pay all the creditors and everything. Well, he wasn't in that for, I think, maybe a year. I can't remember now. And he realized that when I'm done, the estate's going to owe money. <laughs> I'm not going to get a dime. It's going to owe money. He bowed out right away. He says, I don't want to be an heir to this estate. <laughs> because when he, he found out the state owed money, he owed money. And so he didn't want to be there when that happened. So he says, I'm getting out. Well, the reason they started Social Security is because they were bankrupt. Soon as they started Social Security, hey, Federal Reserve started loaning money again. And it's been that way. This is why... Peter says, through covetous practices, what Polybius was talking about, the appetite for benefits at the expense of others, you would become merchandise. You would become collateral for debt. And you would even curse your children with that debt. And that's what you've done. Your children, you know, somebody was telling me how they could get their teeth fixed if they went to uh, New Zealand. They just fly into New Zealand and they're staying in New Zealand and they have a dental problem. Their their medicine will cover that. You know, their their health care will cover that. And he says, for free. <laughs> Every child in New Zealand is born forty-five to $50,000 in debt. And that's, those are old figures. Uh, it may be even more than that now. And there's different ways of figuring that where it can actually be a lot more because there's interest on that debt. So it's the same way in every single country in the world. Everybody born in that country is born in debt because every single country in the world is operating on debt. And any country or any people that is operating on debt is not keeping the Sabbath because they've already taken their day of rest and now they owe. So... Anyway, but these are pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, and now join the network, join a congregation. We'll start making, you know, the plan, the the pathway, the process more and more available. There's a lot to learn. We can go through that. We can start up courses again. But you have to come together caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. If you, you want more men to devote more time to this, then you're going to have to devote some of your life and energy to it as well. And you have to help us beat the brush because the people that should be coming, all the churches out there that say they believe in Christ, they're not coming to the wedding feast. Uh, some may, but many of them won't. And so we're sent out again. We got to beat the hedges. We got to look in the brush. We got to go out to the dry places and find it. Can these bones live again? Well, I, I say they can. And that's the prophecy that they, these bones can rise up. But we need to put some flesh on these bones. Because, man, they have not eaten in a while. <laughs> so, uh, you need to actually start participating in seeking the kingdom. Not for your salvation alone for the salvation of your neighbor. Because that reverses the process. The reason you're in this 
predicament is because you wanted benefits, faith, uh, whatever, at the expense of others. You, you were willing to be taken care of at the expense of others and have developed the habit, the cultural habit of receiving them the, and, and become accustomed to receiving them at the expense of others to the point where you depend for your livelihood on the property of others. So now, you know, the you, you're in debt. Your children are in debt. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. It's worse with you today than it was in the days of Egypt. And so, you know, like I, I mentioned, there are people that are waking up. They just, you know, they've never had this completely explained to them. I, I know some Jewish uh, brothers, the Weissman brothers, uh, one of them was saying, what we need to do is fund the most charitable people in our community just to give them a slush fund and have them go out and serve the needs of the community. And that's what we need to do. That's what the Levites were. <laughs> but you don't give one guy a slush fund. You, you give you have to do this on manageable layers. So, ten families get together and they pick a minister who they think is the most charitable, giving, smartest guy in the, their community of ten. He's the eleventh guy. And they give him a slush fund. Burnt offerings. Here. Do wisely with this. Now, they got to keep an eye on him, but they can, ten guys can keep an eye on one guy. I mean, he's down there where the rubber meets the road, where they live. But then now he gets together with nine other guys like himself. Now the, they pick a minister and he's the overseer for a hundred families. He's only really serving ten ministers. So he's still a diaconist. I'm, I'm repeating this again. So that you get this picture. Well, together, each of them manages a piece of the slush fund. If they get together, 10 men get together in a room and say, okay, I got this need here. And this guy says, oh, I got the, the we've got this need over here. And we've got this need over here. And, and you say, well, you know, really, I think this is the most pressing need. They can move some of the slush fund that each of them controls over to that guy. And, and he gets a chance to manage that. This is casting your bread upon the waters. You don't have to start with everything, at least not right now, because the system hasn't collapsed. You can start with little things. Start figuring this out. I mean, if you want to become a long-distance runner, you want to run a marathon. I run marathons. You don't start with 26 miles. <laughs> you don't, don't start with 26 miles. You start with, can you run a mile? <laughs> okay, okay. I can I can run a mile. Okay, can you run two miles? Okay. So you start small and then you work your way up. But you gotta start. Stop procrastinating. Start gathering together with other people. Are they all gonna come with perfect intent? No. I can tell you this. This is kind of a secret. You don't have perfect intent. You don't have it. I can guarantee it that you do not have perfect intent. But in 
seeking the kingdom, which is a process, you may eventually be remade by the Holy Spirit and have your intent perfected. But you have to walk the walk. You have to run the race. And your legs will carry you, but you need to run it together with others because it's all about learning to care about others. That's why you gather together. You don't gather together because you're all saints. You gather together because you're all sinners who seek to become saints. So that's why you need to join the network. Go to Preparing You. Go to HisHolyChurch.org. Click on the network links. Join the network in your area. Find a congregation in your area. Become a part of that congregation. Even if it's 150, 200, 300, 400, 500 miles away. Everybody's a long ways away in Texas. You know. Then call in every week. And and pick that minister. And make that minister answerable to your heart's desire. Which is the kingdom. Make sure that he's calling in with his other fellow ministers so that you are sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Then start working together as a congregation to find others and care about others. You have to sow a little seeds out there at times of caring about others, doing things for others. You don't necessarily have to start big charitable organizations. You can just show up at existing charitable organizations and Rub elbows with them and try to help people out. You're changing the flow of caring about what you get at the expense of others to caring about what others get at your expense. Christ didn't come so that you could sacrifice for him. He came so that he could sacrifice for you. If you're going to gather together in his name, that's what you have to do. So anyway, I hope this gives you a little bit better picture. If you join the network, you get to ask questions and we will address them on these shows, on these podcasts. And uh, I, I've already started making other podcasts uh, during the week that we'll be releasing through the network and through our regular podcasts. And uh, hopefully we're going to start getting more videos here as the weather gets colder and I'm um, around home or bring the sheep home so I can work here in the office more. But uh, you can't do this unless you help others. You can't find the kingdom unless you're seeking to help others. And that is that is critical to your salvation because that is critical to being a doer of the word. And you say, oh, well, I'm, I'm just saved because I believe in Jesus. But you're not doing the word. You're not doing the will of the Father. Then the kingdom is not coming to you. That's what Jesus says. That's what it says over and over again. And if somebody has crept into your congregation and said, all you have to do is kind of close your eyes and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's not going to cut it. Because James makes it clear that that kind of faith is dead. And Paul really makes it clear too, if you read all of Paul. Because if you're covetous and slothful and wanton, then you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. 
and you're deluding yourself. You're under that strong delusion that somehow you're saved because you thought a thought. You saved yourself with the, the words of your mouth while the the testimony of your actions say something different. You know, of course, that makes you a liar. That's what a liar is. A liar can be somebody who, who tells you a falsehood, but that could also be somebody who tells you a falsehood who could just be mistaken. He's not a liar. He's just repeating something he thought was true, but it's not true. He's not a liar. He's just in error. But a liar is somebody who knows something is false and repeats it. So if you say one thing with your actions, your your heart, your deeds, everything are saying this. But with your mouth, you say this over here. You are the epitome of a lie. You are fooling yourselves. And so I have to tell you that. I, I, I'm the watchman on the wall. It says, that, no, no, you you have to really repent. You have to really think differently. And when you really repent and think differently, you will do differently. You will act differently. You will show up for others because you want God to show up for you. You will show up for others and practice pure religion because you want God's blessing upon you and upon what you do and upon your family. So you have to care about your family, but you have to care about the next family as much as you care about your own. How can you do that if you do not gather together, if you will not sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded? If you don't believe me that he commanded that, go to the website, read the article on commanded. (laughs) Go read Mark, uh, because he says it right in there. But anyway, until then, uh, peace on your house, and may God be with you. I'll see you on the network. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.